Good evening. Thank you so much for coming. We'll continue this evening with our discussion of Paramatma Sandarbha of Srila Jiva Goswami. Uh, we're discussing the intrinsic qualities of the Jiva. And tonight we'll deal with quality number 15. Uh, that the Jiva is atomic. And this will continue for two Anuchetas. So we'll begin with the first, Anucheta 33. The Jiva is atomic in size. Jiva Goswami writes, Jamatri Muni offers another reason why there is a difference, why there is a different Jiva in each body. Namely, because it is Anu, quality number 15. The word Anu here means atomic, Paramanu which means that it cannot be further subdivided even with respect to spatial dimensions, like a point. This indeed is the irreducible limit of a particle according to authorities in this particular field. And the authorities in this field are the Vaisaseka, followers of the Vedas, as we went over in the uh, class a couple evenings ago. <coughs> There are different schools of thought, and one of is Vaisaseka. They do derive their knowledge from the Vedas, but they have, and they're, uh, they're not necessarily theistic, all of them. Some of them are actually atheistic. So you have the logicians, the Nyaya. Just to go over these schools, these six orthodox schools of, of Vedic thought, Remember, there's the orthodox, those that accept the Vedas, and then those that don't, heterodox. Or astika and Gnostica, according to Sanskrit terminology. So those orthodox schools are Nyaya, the school of logic and reason, Vaisheshika, naturalism, with an emphasis on the atomic particles coming together and creating uh, the environment, Sankhya, and we know a little of Sankhya from the teachings of Kapila to his mother, Devahuti, relative to the evolution of the material body. And so we have in the Sankhya, generally Sankhya, as looked at in this reference of one of the, of the schools of thought, is generally an atheistic school. It's only because there's the atheist Kapila and then there's the theist Kapila. Now we look at it from the other side that there's actually somebody that's behind this evolution of a material body. Then there's the school of yoga. That's the school of Patanjali. And then you have the Mimamsas. The Mimamsas, well, they're primarily atheistic in that they give more uh, importance to the fact that karma is like a law of nature. It's like for every action there's an opposite and equal reaction. So it's automatic. So Krishna was preaching that to Nanda Maharaj, this Mimamsa school. We don't need to worship an Indra. And then you have the Vedanta school, which is the school that we follow. So all six of those 
are their followers of the Vedas. They derive their philosophical conclusions from quoting scripture, Vedic scripture. So we'll return to our Anacheta. We say Vedanta, we, we mean what? Do we mean Shankara or? Well, no, not that late. Not Shankara. No. Not here. No, Vedanta. Just the whole body of. The whole body of Vedic. Yeah. Okay. Right. Basically, a philosophy that centers around a presentation of. Uh, what's the terminology again? Prastana uh, Trai. The Ten Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, and the Vedanta Sutra. So, those are what we call the Vedantic schools. Now, within the Vedantic schools, then you have the Ramanujas. You also have that Aaron school of Sankaracharya, you know, which is a misrepresentation, but they use the same Vedic literatures as their. They they comment on the Vedanta. They have their own commentary on the Vedanta Sutra. They use the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads. And then you have the Gaudiya school, which is a little bit unique. We we push the we push the Vedanta Sutra inside and say, why do you need a commentary on the Vedanta Sutra when you have the natural commentary by the author of the Sutra in the form of the Srimad Bhagavatam? So if the author gives you a more a complete commentary by offering a whole other, you know, three theistic presentation, which is spotless, which the Srimad Bhagavatam is, then you don't really need more than that. Mm-hmm. So our tradition in the beginning, at the at, at the time of Sri Chaitanya, where he established Srimad Bhagavatam as the primary praman on the Vedanta Sutra. So in the very beginning of the Madhva Gaudiya Sampradaya, the Gaudiya aspect of it, there was no commentary on the Vedanta Sutra. And then there was seen by the Gaudiyas the need for a wider and a broader audience to the teachings of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So therefore the Gaudiyas they requested Baladeva Vidyabhushan, could you write, please write a commentary so these other schools, these other Vaishnav traditions will start to recognize the importance of what Sri Chaitanya gave. So Baladeva said, oh, well, I don't feel qualified. So it was, we call it the Govinda Bhasha, in that he got the entire inspiration as if it had been dictated to him by the deity, Govinda deity. But still, as evidenced by the Sandarbas, we put all of our we put our stock and trade for our tradition in the Srimad Bhagavatam. We're talking about the fact that the jiva is atomic in nature. There's nothing you can't get at a at a smaller a smaller thing. 
than the Anu, the Paramanu. Paramanu. So, although atomic, it infuses consciousness into the whole body because this is its innate quality manifesting as a unique potency. This potency is like that of a dose of Mahausadi, a type of medicinal herb, which nourishes the entire body even if it is embedded in lack and kept on a single part of the body, such as the head. Or it is like that of a magnet, which induces a piece of iron to move. So this one example here, this one analogy is a medicinal herb. So apparently you can take this medicinal herb and in order to keep it adhered to the body, the band-aid is a piece of lac. So they would put the herb, uh, attach it to the hair so it wouldn't go away and the herb would penetrate the whole body. So it would it only needed to be in that one place. So they're just giving an example here, Jiva is, that just like that herb penetrates the whole body, from the atomic Jiva, the consciousness permeates the whole body. The word Adam here is used to signify an entity that is limited, partless, and hence indivis indivisible. Jiva continues, its atomicity is spoken of by Sri Krishna. Among immense objects, I am the Mahatattva, and of subtle, the infinitesimal things, I am the Jiva. Jiva continues. So he uses that quote from the Bhagavad Gita to support and he goes on. Therefore the Jiva is the irreducible limit of infinitesimality. I'm sorry, in, infinitesimality. Sukhsmata. Here the word Sukhsmatva is meant not in the sense of subtleness due to incomprehensibility, but rather in the sense of infinitesimality or minuteness. Otherwise, the natural flow of these two statements amongst immense objects, I am the Mahatattva, and of subtle infinitesimal things, I am the Jiva, spoken of consecutively in mutual contrast, would be lost. So Jiva is saying we don't, what Krishna is saying in the Bhagavad Gita is it's not that the Jiva is incomprehensible, it's small. It's the smallest thing. So don't look to what Krishna is saying in this verse that of immense things I am the Mahat, meaning the totality of all the, all that is the ingredient of the ingredient nature of a material manifest, or all the material manifestations, the mahat, I'm all, I'm all of it. And of small things, I am the jiva. So these two things are to be seen in that 
not that the Mahat it it wouldn't make sense if that was not Krishna's meaning. So do not think that it's he's speaking of incomprehensible. Not that he's saying I'm incomprehensible because I'm the all of everything and I'm incomprehensible. No, the verse is talking about immensity and minuteness. And when you're saying these six orthodox schools, they all accept this. No, they accept the Vedanta as their ev- as okay. they utilize the Vedas as evidence for their philosophical doctrines. Okay. So, but that yeah, doesn't mean they. Relationship to this particular point with the no. Vedanta, no. What I, the reason I brought it up is in relationship to the fact that the theories of the atomization theory comes from the Vedas and it's, it's put forth by the Vaisiseka. Those followers look to naturalism and this theory of atoms as being the basis of their philosophical doctrine. So for them, everything is a combination of atoms. It's a little bit of difference. So they, and they take the Vedas, they utilize the Vedas to support this doctrine. So that's why we went into the fact that these different schools look at the Vedas differently. So Vaisheshika looks at, looks at that in relationship to everything is coming from a combination of atoms. That's one aspect, and also naturalism. I'm not that familiar with their whole doctrine. Um, but it would differ in, in some respects from that, from the, the Sankhya. The Sankhya looks at a gradual evolution from, from the, the complex of the, of the mind, right? The senses are coming, the master sense, then the the senses are coming in a subtle way as the elements develop as opposed to this other philosophy of Vaisheshika where the, the, everything's coming from a combination. The elements are com- combining in a different form and therefore you have whatever their philosophy is. Now we know that one of those philosophies is the, this idea that if you simply combine the elements in a particular way you could have a body, and when a, when they combine in that way, consciousness arises out of the body. So these kind of misconceptions are there, but they use as a basis the Veda. Mm-hmm. How they draw it from the Veda? Well, you would have to read, you know, their commentaries and their their presentations. But when we talk about the Prastana uh, Trayi, these are Vaishnav schools for the most part. And they derive their conclusions from the Bhagavad Gita, which is in the middle of the Mahabharata, from the ten principal Upanishads, and uh, from the Vedanta Sutra, which is more or less a combination of the essence of Vedic thought when it comes to 
the nature of the self and the nature of the supreme self. In regards to the manifested karma, cosmos, the Mahatattva, the Mahatattva's quality of immensity, Mahatva, actually refers to its pervasiveness because it is the cause of all subsequent phenomenal appearances. So just as the Sukhsmatva of the Jiva here does not refer to subtleness due to its incomprehensibility, the Mahatva, Mahatva of Mahatattva does not imply that it is easily comprehensible in comparison to other elements such as earth. Similarly, the subtleness of the jiva in the world refers specifically to their atomicity. This is the natural meaning. The following Shruti statements also support this. And then Jiva quotes as follows. This atomic self is to be realized through pure intelligence into which the vital force prana has entered in five forms, implying that the vital force is supported by the atma. That's from one of the Upanishads. He goes on, the size of the Jiva should be known as one ten thousandth part of the tip of a hair. That's from the Swetas Vitara Upanishad. And the jiva is perceived as the size of the tip of an awl or knife. Again, uh, Swetas Vitara Upanishad. A couple statements from the commentary just to give you a, a real sense of what Jiva Goswami means when he says atomic in size. It is not even possible to make spatial or directional references to the Anu, such as speaking of its eastern or western side. Indeed, it is more like a geometrical point that has location but no dimension. <clears throat> Being atomic in size, <clears throat> one jiva cannot exist in all bodies, and so there must be a different jiva in each body. This is further evidence as to the multiplicity of jivas. So, the commentary goes on. What objection could be raised? If the jiva is the sole source of consciousness in the body and yet is atomic, then how does it render the entire body conscious? Should it not affect only that part of the body in which it is present? And to this, Jiva, <coughs> Sri Jiva replies that the Jiva has a special innate characteristic by which it extends its consciousness throughout the whole body. Just like a light bulb in a room spreads illumination throughout the whole of the room. So when we see here these comments like Jiva, Sri Jiva replies in the commentary that we're reading, we should understand that in all likelihood, remember Jiva Goswami wrote his own commentary on the Sandarbhas. 
So, although that commentary, we're not reading directly from the commentary, we can rest assured that everything that's in Jiva's commentary has been included here. So when it's saying Sri Jeeva, to this, Sri Jiva replies or explains, it's probably coming from his, uh, his commentary. Then, of course, we talked about the medicinal herd, Mahal Sadi, and how it spreads throughout the whole body. A similar herb is also mentioned in the Sanskrit literature, Hare Chandan, a type of sandalwood that, that if you put this sandalwood on any part of your body, your whole body will, will cool down. And Brahma Sutra, yeah, we need to find that, that's a good idea. Uh, Brahma Sutra also speaks of um, another analogy and all this is in relation, remember, to the fact that the consciousness pervades the whole body. That uh, the Brahma Sutra also uses the, the idea of the fragrance of a flower. So the fragrance fills the whole room from one, one location. Then Jiva directs us to the principal verse of this Aducheda. While describing his vibhutis to Uddhava, Sri Krishna says that among subtle or in other words infinitesimal things he is the jiva. The word sukshma can mean subtle, small or difficult to comprehend. Here the latter meaning is not applicable because in the verse it has been contrasted with the whole mahat or immense. Then there's some dis so Amongst immense objects, Krishna is the Mahatattva. The Mahatattva is all-pervading, whereas the Jiva is Anu, or atomic in size. Since the two are being juxtaposed here, if Sukshma were to mean incomprehensible, then Mahatattva would have to mean easy to comprehend, which is not the case. Then there's some explanation here of that by looking at the Sanskrit behind the words that Krishna used in discussing this with Uddhava. If anyone wants to hear it I'll, or read it, I'll give you a copy. The commentary goes on to explain that the second quotation is from, from the Svesvatara Upanishad. The last part of this verse reads, The self is destined for infinity. This could be interpreted to mean that the self is unlimited, ananta, whereby its being ana or atomic would only be an illusion. The reality being it is being its all pervasiveness, but this cannot be the case because the word anantya here refers to liberation, and thus the intended meaning of the verse is the self is eligible for liberation. <clears throat> and because in liberation there's the concept of entering into the Brahman uh, anta means end or death ananta means without death immortal and thus anantyaya means immortality or liberation or an alternative interpretation is that 
By coming in contact with Brahman in the liberated state, the jiva becomes as if all-pervading by the power of Brahman. So again, context is, is emphasized here. These statements referring to the Atma as being one ten thousandth the size of a tip of a hair or an all are not meant to be taken literally. You can't take the hair and cut it to a hundred points and take it and cut it again into a hundred points because there's no dimensionality. That's the concept. There's no nothing smaller. It's the concept of the smallest is what's trying to be conveyed in the scriptures. The concept that there you can't get smaller than that under any so you can't let me give you all the ways that you might be able to perceive from a material perspective how what that smallest entails. But these analogies, even when they're scriptural statements, they're not to be taken as in the literal context. They're being meant to be taken figuratively in that they're conveying the concept that it doesn't get smaller than that. Who's saying that? Hmm? Who says that? Well, it's in the Svetasvatara Upanishad, the statement. Right. If you cut the hair into a thousand points and a thousand points but, again. But who's saying don't take it literally? The commentary here. Jiva's saying that. Well, it could be G- from Jiva's go- or Sachin Orion, or what's the point is that's what's being said in the Anucheta. Okay, so we can go back and look at the Anucheta, and Jiva says what? Does he actually say not? He doesn't use the wording. Don't take it literally, but in the context of what's being presented, that's that's the logical conclusion that we can arrive at. So, going on, there's another Anucheta. This is the 33rd that we just went through. Now there's the 34th Anucheta dealing again with this atomic nature of the, of the jiva as far as size. The Shrutis agree, argue for the atomicity, atomicity of the jiva. So the Shruti say, and the Shruti, this statement is from the 87th chapter of the <clears throat> 10th canto. O Eternal One, Bhagavan, if the embodied beings, jivas, were an innumerable, who are innumerable and eternal, were to be admitted as all-pervading, then their subordination to another could not be maintained. For that is possible only in the opposite case of their being atomic in size and not all-pervading. You, from whom all these jivas have come, being their cause, pervade them unrestrictedly, completely. Thus you are their regulator. Those who consider you as equal to others have not, not understood you due to adopting a faulty view. <clears throat> so, one may question, why is Jiva really pushing this point that the Jiva is atomic in size 
and dependent here to again emphasize its smallness the smallness of the jiva and it's because of a misrepresentation of the jiva as being brahman actually we're all brahman so if we just if we can properly understand being part of the supreme brahman then we're all pervasive no, you're never going to be all pervasive. Sorry, it's not going to happen. No matter what you read in the scriptures that may lead you to that conclusion, this is the proper understanding. And look to the 87th chapter of the 10th canto of the Bhagavatam where the Shrutis or the personified Vedas themselves give the, the most conclusive information regarding things like this where you can have a misconception in their personified form they're praying to krishna and in those prayers and it's a long chapter they provide so many conclusions regarding the nature of the jiva and the nature of of the supreme that they're and why is that provided there in the 87th chapter by the personified Shrutis, the personified Vedas? It's so, we've just gone through the entire 10th canto of this little boy being God, and here comes the personified Vedas to offer him prayers. For what purpose? To reinforce the fact that all this Leela that you've just been exposed to points in one, to one direction. Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam. Everything you're hearing about is God. And here comes the absolute conclusion from the Vedas themselves. Yes, all these Leelas you heard of, they're God. We're here praying to him and listen to our prayers. In these prayers, you're going to hear conclusive evidence to the fact that Krishna is God. And you're going to, so many misconceptions will be dissipated if you just hear attentively our prayers to Krishna. So you'd say, you know, if you read it initially, it's like, wow, this is a lot of heady stuff. <laughs> Doesn't Krishna know who he is? They're not saying the prayers to Krishna for Krishna's benefit. They're saying them for our benefit so we can understand who Krishna is. Believe me, Krishna knows who he is. Maybe after his Leela, he may be thinking he's just a little boy. And <laughs> the Vedas want to bring him back to the reality of the fact that he's God. And he'd be, he may be just be... <laughs> it could be looked at from different angles, I'm sure. And it has been by the different Acharyas as to why the personified Vedas are, are giving these prayers. <clears throat> but remember, when Brahma came and offered so many prayers, Krishna wasn't so much interested in hearing those things where he was he was praised by Brahma as being the supreme personality. You're gonna you're gonna, you're really messing with my pastimes here with my boyfriends, you know, and I'm in a certain mood here. And he was indifferent to Brahma's prayers at that time, wasn't he? He just he just indifferent to them. <clears throat> 
Jiva goes on to explain the verse from the personified Vedas. This verse is to be understood as follows. So he's giving his commentary on the verse. It is described in the Shrutis that the Jiva is an integrated part of Paramatma and is thus an emanation from him. Since texts like Gita 15.7, Vavivam Sol Jiva Loke, establish the Jiva as a part of Paramatma, it is improper to consider it, it, it as all-pervading. To correct this misconception, the Shruti speak this verse. In reality, the Jivas, Tanu Prita, embodied beings, are countless in number and eternal. If they were all-pervading, then they would not be subject to anyone else's control. Because in, because in that case, they would be equal, not being pervaded by anyone. So what's the question of having a jiva and having a paramatma and having the control? Jiva's saying here, it wouldn't make sense you, if the jivas were all pervading themselves. It just, it, it's not logical. In other words, the Vedic principle that as far as the regulator and the jiva is regulated would be, would not apply. So that's his explanation of, of what the Shruti verse is saying. On the other hand, he goes on to say, O eternal Bhagavan, Dhruva, because the jiva is atomic and is thus undoubtedly pervaded, the non-application of the above Vedic principle is itself negated, meaning that it is most certainly applicable. Moreover, it is said, he from whom all these beings are born, indicating that even if the jiva's state of being an emanation, the principle of the regulated and the regulator is valid because one is the pervaded while the others is pervader. He goes on, because such a relation between effect and cause is seen in all cases, therefore the Shruti speak of the second half of the verse, in the second half of the verse, whatever is the material cause of that which is generated, that cause being the agent is the regulator of the generated entity. It pervades the generated entity completely, not leaving any part of it aside. Moreover, should one someone claim that the entity called Paramatma, assuming the form of the material cause, is equal to some other being, then even the person who endorses such a statement does not know Paramatma in truth. The reason is that their opinion is faulty, meaning that it is impure. Jiva is stating emphatically that anything that doesn't see, anyone that comes to a different conclusion when reading these, this verse from the Shrutis, he's not taking everything that they're saying into full consideration in light of all the other Vedic statements. That, that it just doesn't make sense that the jiva and the paramatma are both all-pervading. Again, pounding the post, making it 
perfectly clear to the reader that this is not the case. The impurity, what he just spoke of, in this regard is that it contradicts the Vedic canons, such as the following following Vedic statements. This, the Supreme Being, is utterly without equal. No one at all is seen to be like Him. All these beings take birth, die, and are incomplete, whereas the Supreme Being, Bhagavan, neither takes birth nor dies. All others are incomplete. Then he quotes from an Upanishad, there is no there is none equal or superior to him. And then he quotes from another Upanishad, Atharva Sira Upanishad. Why is he called Brahman? Because he expands and causes others to evolve. In the Vishnu Purana also it is say, stated, they know Brahman as the supreme because of his immensity and because of being, because of others' evolvement. He goes on, Therefore only Paramatma is all-pervading. As is said, one divinity remains hidden in all beings. He is all-pervading and the indwelling self of all beings. Therefore the jiva is certainly atomic. But what then is intended by the description of the jiva in Sri Bhagavad Gita wherein it is said it is eternal, all-pervading, and stable? Second chapter, 24th verse. Jiva explains, Here all-pervading, Sarvakata, indeed refers to Sri Bhagavan, situated in him and being under his shelter, the atomic jiva is also referred to as all-pervading and stable. Vishwanath also gives another interpretation, commenting on the Bhagavad Gita verse. He comments that Sarvagata means that the jiva, jivas enter into all the various forms of life according to their karma. So they pervade all the different forms of life. So they're all-pervasive. We'll stop there for this evening. Thank you so much.